Welcome to the Great Messages Podcast. My name is Steve Brandon, and this is where I share some great messages that I've heard. My hope is that you too might listen to them and be encouraged as I have been. Well, the message today dates back to July 10th, 1988. It was recorded at Grace Church of DuPage in Warrenville, Illinois. The church had set up a large tent on their property. The tent was large enough to hold about 200 people, I think, And uh, the church was holding some old-fashioned tent meetings for several days that summer. And on this occasion, John MacArthur was the speaker. And he spoke about the new book that he had just written, entitled The Gospel According to Jesus. And I remember being there and impacted greatly by this message. The message begins with MacArthur playing the crowd, stirring us all to laughter, and then naturally transitioning us to the core of his message, the Lordship of Christ. And midway through the message, you can hear the rain starting to come down on the tent. And, but pretty soon the, the wind blew and the rain began to blow into the sides of the tent. And the people on the edges were getting wet. So at one point, MacArthur paused his message so that everyone could scrunch in away from the rain. He continued to preach. And then uh, you can hear even at the end of the message, right, the, the birds chirping in the background as the rain had let up. The Lord used this great message to open my eyes to the transforming power of the gospel. When you believe, your life will be changed. I grew up in an easy believism Christianity where a mere profession of faith made you a shoe into heaven. But in this message, MacArthur showed that there will be many professing Christians who will be denied entrance into Christ's kingdom. And the Lord used this message to open my eyes to the true gospel and to stir my heart to make sure that I wasn't among that number who would be turned away from Christ's kingdom. So enjoy this message entitled, Who Are the Few? from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. This is really fun tonight, isn't it? Kind of a... A throwback to the old days. I grew up, believe it or not, with my dad as a preacher holding tent meetings. We had a tent in the corner of Santa Monica and Vermont in Hollywood, California. And he preached every night in that tent for a month. It was a happening in Hollywood. All the local peanut popcorn vendors were there. It was unbelievable. You know who was converted? Roy Rogers and Dale Evans came to Christ in that thing. And we had an unbelievable tent meeting. Just tremendous. In fact, it was so great that he became a pastor of First Baptist Church of Downey, California. And the first thing he did was go to Firestone and Lakewood Boulevard, the biggest intersection in town, and put up a tent. And we had another tent meeting. Sawdust on the floor. In fact, um, first three or four nights of the tent meeting, I was just a little guy. I went forward at the invitation. There was nothing wrong with my spiritual life. I just felt like I wanted to get the ball rolling, you know? And my dad said to me after three nights, Johnny, I understand your spirit, but you don't have to do that every night. (laughs) It happened to be my birthday at that time, and my parents gave me some money for my birthday. And my dad got up one night and made such a great appeal for the offering, I put it back in the offering. And he told me it was okay to do that with money that other people gave me, but not with the money that he gave me. But anyway, we don't want to talk about it. It's a wonderful evening, isn't it? That cool breeze uh, may portend a, portend a little bit of rain, but uh, we'll do what we can to share together tonight. We're grateful to be here. It's wonderful to see Phil Webb, who uh, was in our church 
at Grace Community Church in Southern California was singing all those beautiful songs for us till he stepped out of God's will. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. We send him with blessing to this part of the world. He's, he's a precious gift from the Lord. And it's good to be with Rich, and it's good to be with the folks that I've gotten to know back here. It's good to meet some of you that I've never met before, but feel like you know me because you've heard me on the radio. And I will confess right off the bat, I look better on radio. <laughs> That's how it is, folks. But, uh, in fact, one little girl came to me this morning. I preached down at Moody Church. She ran up to me and she said, Mr. MacArthur, I thought you had brown hair. I said, you were right. <laughs> I did have brown hair once upon a time, but that's life. Let's open the Bible. I hope you have your Bible tonight. If you don't, God have mercy on your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. Come to an old-fashioned tent meeting without a Bible. I'm going to tell you give you a little bit of personal testimony before I start to talk about the Word. Last Sunday night, a young man came up to me, young man my age, came up to me after church. He looked at me. He said, Do you remember me? I said, um, No. He said, I'm Sterling. I said, I can't believe it's Sterling. He was my sixth grade buddy, played baseball, went to church together. I hadn't seen him maybe once since the sixth grade. I said, what are you doing here? He said, well, he said, God's working in my life, and I'm starting to come to your church. I said, what about all the years in between? Well, he said, I don't want to talk about it. When I was in high school, I had a friend named Ralph. Ralph uh, played first base on our baseball team. He, I played shortstop. He played on the basketball team. He played on the football team. We were buddies. His dad was the general manager of a Buick agency in Santa Monica, and I worked for him in the summer repossessing cars. And that is fun. The guy goes out in the morning to get his car, gone. You get the hot wire legally, you know. But I, he and Ralph and I would repossess cars in the summer. We were real close buddies. There's a place in downtown Los Angeles called Pershing Square. Some of you have seen it. Pershing Square is where, you know, derelicts and, you know, street corner philosophers go. And Ralph and I would go down there on the weekend sometimes and we'd share the gospel. Just high school kids. His dad was very active in the church. He was very active in the church. And we go down and witness in Pershing Square. We both went away to college. I saw Ralph after his freshman year. I said, hey, Ralph, how you doing? He said, well, I think I ought to tell you something. I said, what is it? He said, I'm an atheist. I said, what do you mean you're an atheist? He said, I don't believe in God. What do you mean you don't believe in God? Ah, I forget all that stuff. I'm living a different life. And he began to describe to me sexual sin, drinking, the whole deal. I wasn't sure how that fit in my theology. I went away to seminary, and I became good friends with the son of the dean of the seminary. 
He was a, he had a great voice. And we sang in a quartet. We sang duets. We went out to preach and sing together. His father was the dean of the seminary. He was there taking a master of divinity to go into the ministry to be a pastor. Today he has a Buddhist altar in his home. And his wife, who became a Buddhist, has long ago left him, and he's gone into some kind of psychology. Kind of hard for me to deal with. Wasn't real sure in those early days how that fit into my theology. Didn't just exactly know where to put uh, Dale, didn't know where to put Ralph. I came to Grace Community Church to be the pastor, and I, I worked with a guy named Ben, and I met him every, every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. for one hour of prayer. The two of us, usually one other guy would come, we prayed for an hour. I poured my life into that guy for one solid year, at the end of which time he left his wife, and I found him in the middle of the night in a house in a bed he never should have been, and I chased him until I found him. He has repudiated Christ. He's out of the church. Um... I was flying on a plane one time from Chicago to L.A. by way of St. Louis. I'm not sure why. But somehow I got, on a, I got into St. Louis, and they had to change me on planes, and I got on a plane, and I sat down, and I started studying my Bible, and a guy sat down next to me, introduced himself. He was a starting tight end at the University of Kentucky. He had just finished his senior year. He was flying to California for a job. He didn't even know me, but he saw a Bible in my hand, and he said, Sir, he said, I don't want to interrupt you, but he said, Could you possibly tell me how I can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That was his question. I mean, don't we have to prove the Bible or something? I mean, you don't just ask that question out of the blue. And I explained to him the best I could. And I said, where are you going? I'm going to California. Who are you going to work for? Ron Jolly. Ron Jolly, he's an elder in our church. I'll disciple you. So I baptized him and discipled him. And one day he disappeared and abandoned Christ and abandoned the faith and never seen him since. And I wasn't really sure even then in those early years how that fit into my theology. Who are these people that hang around a while and leave? It's a frightening thought. And you have it too, don't you, sometimes? Because you know the same kind of people, don't you? They were in your church a little while, then they disappeared. Or maybe you uh, have somebody in your family who keeps telling you they're a Christian, but you can't quite see the evidence of it. And you're asking yourself the question, just where are they? Recently, a youth pastor said to me, I just had an unbelievable experience. He said, we had a camp, and a high school girl at the end of the camp committed her life with tears to Christ. Just a broken kid, over, broken over sin and repentance, and committed her life to Christ. Tremendous, tremendous experience for this girl. And he said, I really feel she was redeemed. And apparently she told her mother, and about two or three days after she got home from camp, the mother called me on the phone, absolutely livid and irate, saying, how dare you plant any doubt in my daughter's mind about whether she was really a Christian? Don't you know she accepted Christ when she was five years old? How dare you question that? It's strange, isn't it? Some people hold to the strangest things to verify salvation. A five-year-old commitment is more significant than repentance with tears during your high school years. 
Shouldn't we question the validity of someone's salvation? I was riding in a car with a president of a seminary. This is not just a average guy. This is a seminary president. We passed a, a lot of liquor stores that had the same name as we were driving through this place. And, and I said, that's funny that there's so many liquor stores with the same name. He said, they're all owned by one guy. Twenty-five of them in the city. And I said, that's interesting. He said, yeah. He said, and what's most interesting is he's a guy in my Sunday school class. I said, wait a minute. you telling me you have a guy in your Sunday school class that owns 26 liquor stores? He said, yeah. I said, well, does anybody say anything to him about it? It seems inconsistent. No, he said, I, I've never really said anything about it. I said, well, doesn't it bother the church? Well, I don't know. It may be a problem for some folks. I said, well, are you sure he's a Christian? He said, oh, yeah. Oh, I remember the day he came forward. I, he said, and you know what really bothers me isn't the liquor stores. Never forget this. He said, you know, for a long time he's been living with a girl that's not his wife. This is a seminary president. I said, now, wait a minute. you got a guy who owns 26 liquor stores, been living with a woman who's not his wife, and is in your Sunday school class. I said, does he come often every week? And then he said this. It is hard to understand how a Christian could live like that. I said, did it ever enter your mind? that he's not a Christian. Oh, no. Now, I, remember the day he, I remember the day he came forward. Where do we put these people in our theology? The question of um, who is really saved and who really belongs to Christ seems to me the most important question of all. Twenty years ago, I came to Grace Community Church. been 20 wonderful years. I found some people who will take me, and I'm staying. Twenty years. I'm not risking myself on anybody else. <laughs> Twenty years ago, they took me, and I think they took me because I was young. They had two pastors in a row, died of a heart attack. They said, get a young one. We don't want to support another widow. <laughs> so I came. The first sermon I preached in that church, I preached on the same text I want to talk to you about tonight. Matthew chapter 7. Now you can open your Bible. And it speaks to this very issue. This very issue. Jesus, at the end of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, which was, I believe, the greatest evangelistic sermon ever preached, a sermon directed at the false religious system of the Pharisees and Sadducees, a sermon directed at religion without God, to show its vacuous, empty, useless form. A sermon directed at religious tradition to strip it naked so that the men would then see their desperate need for a Savior. And in the end, he says this in verse 13, Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be who go in that way, because narrow is the gate, and hard is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. You've heard this many times, haven't you? This passage? Let me give you some perception. Jesus is saying there are two paths, two entries to those two paths, and two destinations. 
Now, typically, when anyone preaches on this, what you have on the one hand is saying, well, the narrow path goes to heaven and the broad path goes to hell. And on the narrow path, you have all the saved people on their way to heaven, and on the broad path, you have all the unsaved people on their way to hell. That's really not what it's saying. The broad road is the road to re of religion. Both of them are religious paths. One is the religion of self-righteous works. You see, there are only two religions in the world, the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment in Christ. Every religion apart from Christianity is a religion of human achievement to one degree or another. Every one of them. You earn your way somehow by doing good works. So the broad road is the road of good works religion. It is marked heaven. It doesn't go there. That's the lie. See, nobody is selling tickets to hell. Nobody opens a church and says, Join our church. We're going to hell. Nobody starts a cult and says, Come with us into the kingdom of darkness. No, no. Nobody sells tickets to hell. Nobody calls you on the road to hell. They call you on the road to heaven that doesn't go there. That's the deception. And you'll notice that it has a broad gate. Why? Because you can get on with all your baggage. You can bring your works, your sin, your self-righteousness, anything you want. You just walk on with all of it. And when you get on, it's a broad road, which means you can live any way you want. You can lollygag from one side to the other. Lifestyle really isn't important. And you sprinkle a little religion on your human activity, and you're okay. Only as John Bunyan said, you're going to find the entrance to hell is from the portals of heaven. What you thought was heaven isn't. To me, it's the most frightening thought in all the Bible. To think you're going to heaven and wake up in hell. Self-deceived. Self-deceived. There's the other road, and it's narrow, and the gate is narrow, and it leads to life, and it's hard to find. You know why it's hard to find? It's hard to find the true way. It's hard to find the narrow way. I don't know how it is in the Chicago Tribune, but if you open the L.A. Times any given Saturday and look at the church page, it's very hard to find the narrow way. All the isms and schisms and spasms and yogis and cults and occults and everything else that's in there, it's hard to find the narrow way, too, because you have to come with a searching heart. It's not readily available. The deceptions of Satan are readily available. The truth of God is for those who are prompted by the Spirit to search with all their heart, says Isaiah. It's a narrow gate, which means you go on it with nothing. You ever try to carry your luggage through a turnstile? You can't make it. And when you get on the narrow way, it's compressed. The Greek word means compressed. In other words, it's a demanding kind of walk. Uh, Jesus said nobody builds a tower without doing what? counting the cost, and nobody goes to war without checking out his troops. And he says, and neither are you going to follow me until you've examined what it's going to cost. And if a man will follow me, let him take up his, what? Cross. There's a price to pay. So there's a narrow way that leads to life and a broad way that says heaven but goes to hell. And Jesus is saying, take your choice, true religion or false. The true way or the false way. Please notice verse 15. Beware of false what? Because they're selling tickets to what? The broad way. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. May I comment on that for a moment? What is sheep's clothing? 
What clothes sheep? Wool. Wool. They're not dressed like sheep. They're dressed in wool. And in the Old Testament it says that the false shepherd and the false teacher wears a rough wool garment to deceive. The wool garment was the cloak of the prophet. They aren't false sheep. They're false what? Prophets. And they're selling tickets on the road that leads to destruction. Beware of them. Now the result of their efforts over in verse 22. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he, here we go, that does the will of my Father. Now that introduces what I want to talk to you about, okay? And I want you to really follow my thinking. We're just going to go through Matthew as the Spirit directs us here, and I'm going to try to unfold to you the answer to this question. Who are the few? That's the question. Who are the few? who find the narrow way. Who are they? Who are they? How can we identify them? How can we know them? How can we recognize them? What are we looking for? Are we looking for a moment in the past when they said something or did something or signed a card or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or stuck their hand in the air or felt a spiritual goosebump? What are we looking for? How do we identify the few? The first thing we notice is that it isn't what they say. Not everyone that, what? Says, Lord, Lord. You see, orthodox theology does not necessarily mean true salvation. Can you handle that? Let me tell you something. Do you remember what James says in chapter 2? The devils, what? Believe and tremble. Do you know there are no more orthodox personalities in the world than demons? Do you know they're all fundamentalists? Yeah. They're all premillennial reformed fundamentalists. They all are. They don't they know orthodoxy. Demon faith is orthodox. It has to be orthodox. They're fallen angels. They have known God from the beginning when they were created. They have lived through all of redemptive history. They know there's a trinity. They know Jesus is Messiah. They know He's God. They know who the Holy Spirit is. They know that the Word of God is true every word. They are orthodox, and they are damned. Orthodoxy is not necessarily the issue. It's not what you say. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. It's not what you say. It's what you what? All right, now, we're going to identify the few, then we're going to have to look not at what they say, but at what they, at what they do. Look at verse 22. What's the first word? What is it? Many. Do you, do you remember that word before? Where was that word? Where was that word? Verse 13, wasn't it? The broad gate, and many there be who go in. Are you ready for this one? Many go in that way, and now we see the many showing up at the end. It's the same many. It's the same many. And what do they say? Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And have we not cast out demons in your name? And in your name done many wonderful works? And he says, depart from me, I what? I never knew you. I'm not impressed with your religious activity. 
Are you ready for this? It isn't what you say, and it isn't your religious activity that prove whether you're a member of the few. These people, they didn't preach heresy, they preached Christ. They prophesied in His name. And in His name, they, they claimed to have cast out demons. Of course, that's questionable. And in His name, they have done many for wonderful works. They may have cast out demons because Satan will cast out Satan. He's not, because he's fallen, he's not that smart. You have that in Acts, don't you? With the sons of Sceva casting demons out of people. So you have unbelieving people casting demons out of other unbelieving people. Satan's inconsistent because he's fallen, and a fallen mind is an inconsistent mind. And that's why you can't see logic in Satan's approach to anything because his mind is so corrupt. And because he can't control all the rest of the corrupt demons. He's not omnipotent even in his own system. But here is someone who says, this is what we've done religiously. We have preached and we have cast out demons and we have done mighty works. And the Lord says, I'll profess to them, I never knew you. What does he mean by knew you? It doesn't mean I don't know who you are. He knows who everybody is. No, as the idea of intimacy. The Old Testament says Cain knew his wife and she bore a son. doesn't mean he knew who she was. doesn't mean he knew her name. doesn't mean he knew where she lived. It means he knew her in intimacy. And the Lord is not saying, I don't know who you are. He's saying, I don't have any intimacy with you. You don't belong to me. My sheep hear my voice and I what? I know them. Same idea. So I want you to notice, the few are not those who make the claim either to know the Lord or to have served the Lord. You don't, you don't evaluate them. Now follow this. You don't evaluate them on their claims and you don't evaluate them on their religious activities. There's something behind all of that. You have to evaluate them on the pattern of their life. You see that? The pattern of their life. At the end of verse 23, it says, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of what? pattern of your life is iniquitous. It's iniquitous. Notice verse 24, and here he gives an illustration. He says there were, there were two people who built a house. This is a religious structure. This is a religious life that they built, the religious superstructure. And it looked good. You couldn't tell the two apart, right? Two religious houses. This guy's doing his thing for God, and this guy's doing his thing for God. This guy's working for Christ, this guy's working for Christ, and this guy's preaching, and this guy's preaching, and this guy's doing works, and this guy's doing religious works. And, and nothing can be told as to the reality of either situation until what? The storm. The flood. Is it coming? Okay. Come on in and join the crowd. We, these are exactly the people we want close to the speaker. Okay. That's right. Come on, feel free to sit right up here. Come on up on the platform. Just get in. And we used to send out at our church an SOS. That means slip over some. This is great. This is great.
Oh, that's great. Two seats right over here in the middle for two folks. You can, uh, if you can find your way in there, if you need to. <laughs> All right. Now the next thing we want to be sure is that the tent doesn't leak. <laughs> because I am convinced that immersion is the proper way to baptize. <laughs> All right. Okay, let me have your attention now. And let's get back to the thoughts of God's Word. We don't want to be distracted too much. But the issue that I want to point out to you, and I want you to stay with my thinking on this and out of the Word of God, the issue here is that it is two different people who build two different houses. They look the same on the outside, but what is different? What's the one difference? One has what? A foundation, the other doesn't. In other words, one is based on God built on, if we may say, Christ. The other is not. It's just religious activity. But we can't know the difference until the storm. You know what the storm represents? Judgment. Judgment. Now, I don't know enough about your church. But if this is what the Lord is bringing, so be it. The, in this particular story that our Lord is telling, this illustration, the storm represents the final judgment. Now listen to this. The only way that we will be able to tell the difference between two religious people will be in the final judgment. Now you remember what Jesus said? The wheat and the tares will grow together. And He said to the Christians, Don't pull up what? The tares, because you might do what? You might pull up the wheat. You might pull up the wheat. We can't tell all the time. We can be deceived, can't we? Do you know you can not only be deceived about the salvation of someone else? Follow this one. You can be deceived about your own salvation. James says that. He says, if you're a hearer only, and not a what? A doer, you what? Deceive yourself. You deceive yourself. So you can be deceived about others, and you can be deceived about yourself. But God is not deceived. And God can make a proper judgment, and He will at the end. But nonetheless, there are criteria by which we can be sure that a person is a member of the few. We can't always know who's not, but we can sure see the product of who is. How do we know that? How can we be sure who is really a member of the few? The first thing I want you to notice, verse 21, back into it. The one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who what? Does the, the will of my Father. Now let me tell you something. The first and foremost aspect of Christian, regenerate, transformed character is a desire to do God's will. Basic. Basic. 
What was the first word that the Apostle Paul uttered after his conversion? Lord, what do you want me to do? Was he theologically trained to ask that question? It was an instantaneous response. It was the cry of a transformed heart. Show me what to do. The will of God. Jesus talked about doing the will of God. He said that His meat was to do the will of the Father who sent Him. That's a characteristic of spiritual life. So the first mark of the few, they desire to do the will of God. The second, notice down in verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. We take a second step. One, the first characteristic of a true believer, one of the few, he desires to do the will of God. The second characteristic, he does it. The desire is there and the response is there. Let's go to chapter 13. Are you glad it's raining? Good. Good. This is very reminiscent of... Are you glad it's raining? <laughs> this is... <laughs> this is... Um, squeeze in, folks. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now that we have moved the sinners closer to the front, we carry on. Good. I think we've covered this area pretty well over here, all right? This is great. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and if the windows aren't up, forget it. You won't make it. Okay. Now, back to Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. And I want to show you... I want to show you something very, very basic, okay? In Matthew chapter 13... Don't, don't lose me now, folks. All right. In Matthew chapter 13, I want you to know the parable that our Lord told of the soils. There are six kind of soils in this parable. Six kind. Three had no fruit, and three bore fruit. The first kind of soil, verse 4, wayside, the birds ate it, devoured it. Second kind of soil, stony, rocky soil, no deepness of earth, no fruit. Third kind of soil was weedy soil, and it had weeds or thorns that choked out the seed, no fruit. The next three kind of soil brought forth fruit. Hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Okay? Now go over to the interpretation of that. The interpretation of that is in verse 19. Follow along. This is a tremendously important portion of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 13, 
Verse 18. Jesus says, here's the parable of the sower. Listen to this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, then comes the wicked one, catches away what was sown in his heart. <laughs> okay, you guys. This is very difficult. You think you're having a hard time listening. I can't remember what I'm talking about. There we go. Sunshine. Amen. It's all right. It's all right. None of this counts on my time. So. <laughs> Thank you, both of you. Okay. <laughs> Look at the rainbow. <laughs> Is it always like this at Grace Church DuPage? <laughs> what a happy place this is. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I don't want to be in charge, but Lord, that's enough. Let's go. <laughs> okay, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away what was sown in his heart. Satan comes, you give the gospel to someone, you drop the seed, they never respond, Satan snatches it, nothing happens. The next, the seed goes into a stony place. This is a person who has, um, his heart has never been plowed. There's an emotional response, the gospel looks good, there's a feeling about it, this is a good thing to do, it might change my life, fix my marriage. I've worked with a lot of athletes who think it'll raise their batting average. And, you know, you're looking at the gospel as if it's some cure-all for whatever area of life you'd like, and you've got this emotional felt need, and you grab on and you make a little prayer, but the heart has never been plowed. The plowing of the Spirit has never happened. And so what happens is the thing starts to spurt up like it's going to really grow and produce fruit, and the roots try to go down, and they hit rock, and the sun comes out and burns it, and it dies. That's the people who respond emotionally, but the heart has never really been plowed and transformed. And then he says the the weeds, that's another kind of soil. The cares of this world, the love of riches choke out the good seed, and it is the last word of verse 22. What is it? Unfruitful. But the one who is good ground bears fruit hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. What is characteristic of the few? They bear fruit. They bear fruit. What is fruit? That's the righteous product of your life. Two kinds of fruit. You ready for this? Two kinds of fruit. Attitude fruit and action fruit. What is attitude fruit? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. That's attitude fruit. That's the fruit in your heart. Love is an attitude. Joy is an attitude. Peace is an attitude. Gentleness is an attitude. Meekness is an attitude. And the first evidence of a transformed life, of good ground, is a change, a dramatic change, a total change in attitude. And then there's action fruit. Action fruit, Paul says, the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of your lips, says the writer of Hebrews, which is praise to God. 
being willing to share and do good. Any righteous deed is action fruit. Any righteous attitude is attitude fruit. Now listen carefully. Action fruit without attitude fruit is legalism. But when you're filled with the Spirit and He produces right attitudes, it results in right actions because you behave consistent with your attitudes. The way you think is the way you what? The way you act. So who are the few? They are those who seek to know the will of God. They are those who in knowing it do the will of God. And they are those who in attitude and action produce righteous fruit. Let's go further. Verse 44 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. You know where they used to put their treasure in the old days? In the field. But they didn't have a bank and so forth like we do today that uh, they could trust and that could be sealed and locked and all of that like we have today. So this, they would bury it in a field. They would mark like pirates do, you know, and put their treasure someplace like that. They would mark where it was to be. But sometimes people died and the treasure was left there. So here Jesus tells a story about a treasure hidden in a field. Not uncommon in Israel to bury valuables in the ground. Here's a guy plowing a field. He pops up a treasure chest, opens it up. It's got an incredible treasure. And he finds it, and he hides it, and for joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. That's how bad he wants a treasure. Somebody says, boy, he's not a very moral guy. Why did he hide it? He is a moral man. If he wasn't a moral man, he wouldn't have bought the field. He would have what? Stolen the treasure. The guy has so much integrity, he buys the field. You say, well, why did he hide it? The implication here is, and the fact that our Lord used the story the way he did, is that the person who owned the field at that time had no more right to the field than he did. No more right to the treasure than he did. It may have been a treasure from generations and generations back. And he has the integrity to go buy the whole field to get the treasure. And I want you to notice one thing. What did he have to sell to buy the field? Everything. Everything. He stumbled across it. Sold everything. Look at the next parable, verse 45. King of heaven's like a merchant man seeking fine pearls. This man isn't stumbling across something. He's looking for it. He, he's not a man who's interested in diversification. He doesn't want to diversify his assets. He wants one pearl. He wants to put his whole fortune in one pearl. And when he found one pearl of great price, he went and what did he do? What did he do? So Same thing, right? Two parables, both have the same point. The only difference is the first guy stumbled across it, the second guy was looking for it. In both cases, they sold everything they had to get it. That's the gospel. That's salvation. Some people stumble over it. Some people search for years, don't they? But when they find it, the few will sell what? All. You don't add Jesus to your life. You give up your life for Him. You, give, you, give, you crucify yourself. You set yourself aside. It's an exchange of all that I am for all that He is. I didn't understand the full implications of that, but all I knew is when I came to Christ that I wanted no more of me and I wanted all of Him. And it isn't that I understood all of the implications of that. They're still dawning on me. Do you realize now, I've been a Christian for a long time, and sin is more sinful to me this year than it ever has been in the years before. 
And God is more precious to me than He's ever been. And His will is more wonderful to me than it ever was. When you become a Christian, you don't understand the fullness of the sinfulness of sin and the fullness of the glory of God in Christ. But you understand enough to know that you've had enough of you and you want all of Him. I was in a, in a hotel in Hollywood. I was speaking to a group of actors and actresses. And I, I had the opportunity to do that some years ago, and it was interesting. And I was talking to these people about the gospel, just giving them the gospel. It was a smoke-filled room. And, you know, they were there because some people invited them, about 50 people there, and I was just giving them the gospel. I got all done with the gospel, and a handsome guy came up to me from the Middle East. He said, I'm Muslim. But he said, I want Jesus Christ. Whoa. You know, that's exciting. Not too many Muslims have come to Christ under my preaching. Went in a little side room. I remember at side room, we sat down. I talked to him, prayed a prayer, invited Christ to become his Savior. He invited. He, he said something about Jesus come into my life. Never forget this. Afterwards, I shook his hand. He said, this is wonderful. Now I have two gods, Jesus and Muhammad. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, I think we got to do this again. This is not what. This is not the way. You don't get two gods, Jesus and Muhammad. You don't get two gods, Jesus and the world. You don't get two gods, Jesus and money. You cannot serve two masters. It's a sell-all. The love of this age and the deceitfulness of riches will choke the true life. The few sell all. They sell all. Chapter 19. This is the story of the rich young ruler. You remember that story? One came to him, verse 16, came to Jesus. He says, good master. This is very respectful. In effect, he's calling him teacher, master, rabbi. He calls him good. That's a, that's a statement of, of his perception that Jesus was a man of high moral, religious, spiritual character. He says, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, listen to this. This is a young man. This is a rich young man. This is a ruler of a synagogue, Archon. Most likely the ruler of a local synagogue. Very religious, very prestigious, had money, prestige, religion, prominence, the whole business. The one thing he didn't have was what? Eternal life. It, what did that mean to him as a Jew? It meant that he did not sense that he had the life of God in his soul, which would give him hope for eternity. He didn't have that. So he's coming out of a felt need. He has religion, he has money, he has prestige, he has all of that stuff, but his heart is empty and he does not have hope that after death he will know life eternal. He does not have a quality of life, the life of God in his soul, to secure him as he faces death. It's empty. So he comes and... By the way, he says if you compare Mark and Luke in the same account... It says he was running, he was eager, and he, he slid in on his knees. He was humble, he wasn't embarrassed, and he asked the right question to the right person, right? 
Who better to ask? What good things shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's the right question. I've heard people say, oh, you should never have said that. You shouldn't say, what good things shall I do? That's works. No, come on. Give the guy the benefit of the doubt. He didn't say it that way. If somebody came to you and said, what do I do to be saved? You don't say, oh, don't say I do. It's not you. No, no, no. You understand what they mean. So he says, what do I do? He's coming from his viewpoint. And Jesus um, says, why are you calling me good? Probing a little deeper into his heart to see who he thinks Jesus might be. There's only one that's good, and that is what? You wouldn't possibly be uh, saying that I'm God, would you? Then he says this, if you want to enter into life, end of verse 17, do what? Keep the commandments. Is that the right answer? Is that the right answer? Somebody comes to you and says, what do I do to have eternal life? Do you say, keep the commandments? Is that the right answer? Any Bible college in the country that I know of, you put that on the quiz, you get it wrong. That doesn't sound like the right answer. Keep the commandments? You know what Jesus is saying? Sorry, we can't talk about eternal life yet. We have to talk about something else. We have to talk about something else. And what we have to talk about is the commandments. And he said to him, verse 18, the young man says, Which ones? Which ones do you want to know if I've kept? Jesus gave him the second half of the Decalogue. Thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. You shall honor your father and your mother. And then he threw in, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second half of the Decalogue. The first half deals with the man's relation to God. The second half with man's relationship to man. So he gave him the easy half of the impossible Ten Commandments. In that sense. And the young man said to him, verse 20, All these things have I what? I've kept. What was Jesus trying to get him to admit to? That he was what? sinner. Jesus said, before we talk about your felt need, and before we talk about the fact that you would like to feel secure, and before we talk about the fact that you would like to go to heaven, and before we talk about the fact that you'd like not to fear death, we've got to talk about something else. We've got to talk about your sin. Salvation is always granted on the terms of repentance from sin. The young man wouldn't admit his sin, would he? What an egotist. He reminds me of the, the Pharisee. I thank thee that I am not as other men. Luke 18. I tithe and I fast. And I'm not like that sinner over there. And the guy's in the corner beating his chest. God, be merciful to me. What? A sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. Not the other. Who are the few? They're the ones who come in brokenness and contrite spirit and repentant over their sin. Not this young man. Then Jesus said something else to him. If you want to be perfect or right with God, if you want to be right with God, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Is that the right answer? If somebody came to you and said, how do I become a Christian? Go sell everything you have give to the poor. Is that salvation by philanthropy? By charity? Hey, you got to be careful of that one. If you get saved by giving your money to the poor, 
The poor just got lost until they give it to somebody else. And what we've stuck with is passing it back and forth and hoping you don't have it when the end comes. This is like musical chairs, you know. When the music stops, you better hope somebody else has got the money. It's not salvation by philanthropy. Why did he say that? Because there was another issue that had to be addressed before he was going to give that man some kind of bomb for his pain. The first issue was, will you recognize you're a sinner? And the second issue is, will you do what I tell you no matter how hard it is? Because at the end of verse 21, he says, come and what? Beloved friends, that is the heart right there. Jesus only asks two questions of a person who seeks eternal life. Are you a sinner? And will you repent from your sin? And will you do whatever I ask, no matter how deeply it reaches into the things you love? And this young man says, went away, sorrowful because he had what? Great possessions. He didn't want Jesus if it meant he had to break the back of his self-righteousness or if it meant he had to submit to Christ's lordship. Who are the few? The few are those who repent of their sin gladly, eagerly for the salvation that is offered and who willingly follow Christ. I wish evangelists and preachers, instead of saying, make a decision for Christ, would begin to say to people, will you follow Jesus Christ? Will you turn from your sin and follow Jesus Christ? That's a true invitation. Jesus said to the disciples, follow what? Me. And to Peter in John 21, follow me. This is a life not a moment of decision. Not a moment of decision. I just wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. It deals with the subject of salvation. I hope you'll read it. And in that book, I quote some contemporary writers who are saying, and this is prevalent in America now, that if you believe in Christ for only one moment in your life and never believe again, you are eternally saved. And if you become an agnostic, an atheist, and an outright apostate, if you ever believed for one moment, you're saved. And, beloved, that is not only a misrepresentation of true salvation. That strikes a blow at the power of God. Because what it says is that when God saves you, He can't do a complete work. That's an attack on the character of God and His nature and His power. I believe that God saves us, produces all of these things by His power. The few are those who love God's will. Why? Because He plants a love for His will in their hearts. The few are those who do God's will. Why? Because He plants obedience in their hearts by the power of the Spirit. The few are those who turn from their sin. Why? Because as Paul said to Timothy, it is God who grants repentance the few are those who submit. Why? Because it is God who brings the soul to submission. So when you get any less conditions for true salvation, you're really dealing with the work of God, not the work of man. Because it's all the work of God. 
Jesus goes on to tell an interesting parable. He says, a rich man... Uh, after this story, not really a parable, but an illustration. He says, I say with, unto you that a rich man shall with difficulty enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, very difficult for a rich man to get into heaven. How difficult is it? It is easier for what? A camel to go through the eye of a needle. How easy is that? Folks, that is what? Impossible. Camels can't go through the eye of needles. People say, well, you're, you're saying rich people can't be saved. I know some rich people who are saved. No, you do. Uh, no, you have to understand what he means. I've heard people try to explain this. Well, you see, a camel can go through the eye of a needle under some conditions. <laughs> well, what condition? Well, I heard a man say, and I've read this, that in the wall in Jerusalem there was an old gate called the Needle Gate. You ever heard that? Yeah. I don't think so. I never found the Needle Gate. Is there a Needle Gate? No, the Needle Gate. The Jewish people are bright. They will not jam camels through a tiny needle gate. They will walk down the road and go through the Joppa gate or whatever gate. I mean, give them a break or they'll knock out a few stones and make a bigger one. There's no needle gate. I heard one guy say, well, if you reduce a camel to liquid, you can eye drop him through this. Or if you line up his molecules, you can shoot him through the eye of a needle. This is, in Persia, they had an ancient expression to, to express impossibility. They said it would be easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. The biggest animal in Israel was a camel. They adapted it and used the word camel. And what our Lord is saying, you see, He says this, rich people don't get in the kingdom on their terms or by their money, and it's impossible for them to do it. He's not saying rich people can't be saved. He's saying rich people can't be saved on their terms. That's impossible. But what is impossible with men is what? possible with God. The few don't come on their terms, they come on God's terms. Oh, that's so good. Chapter 22, and we'll draw this to a conclusion quickly. There's so many more things to say. That's what your pastor always says just when he's run out of material. <laughs> we could go on and on, brethren, but uh, you see... This. No. Not really. Not really. Chapter 22. Jesus spoke unto them a parable. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage for his son, sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. They wouldn't come. There are always two invitations in ancient times to a wedding. Two invitations. In fact, it is written, I think, in the Jerusalem Talmud that no uh, respectable Jewish man would go to a feast unless he had been invited twice. The first time you were invited formally, the second time you were called when the banquet was ready. And time was elastic, and the preparations were complex, and food wasn't frozen, and everything wasn't pre-prepared, and so it took time, and they didn't know exactly when the moment when everything came together would be. So you were a pre-invited guest waiting for the time when the servants came and said, Now you come. And that's what happened. So he sends the servants and he says, Tell the people, verse 4, who have already been bidden or welcomed, it's time. I prepared the dinner, the ox, the fatling killed, all things ready, come to the marriage. They made light of it, went on their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Some people were indifferent, and the remnant took his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Now, what a strange reaction. You can imagine people listening to that saying, that's terrible. You've been invited to a wedding, and now it's time for the wedding. They come and get you, and some of you walk off to your business and your farm indifferent, and others of you kill the messengers. Who's he talking about? 
Who was the pre-invited guest to be welcomed to the wedding of Messiah? Israel. Israel. And some of them were indifferent, and some of them killed the messengers. Right? When the king heard of it, he was angry. He sent his armies and destroyed the murderers and burned their city. 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem. Now he said to the servants, The wedding is ready. They are bidden. We're not worthy. Go into the highways as many as you find. Bid to the marriage. And this is the church. And they got everybody. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Now come to verse 11. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man who didn't have a wedding garment. I call this guy the kingdom crasher. He tried to crash the party without a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, you came in here without a wedding garment. Um, how'd you get in? He was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, tie him up, take him away, throw him into outer darkness, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's that place? Send him to hell. Who is this? Who is this guy? He's in the wedding party. He doesn't have a garment. What do you mean doesn't have a garment? What's, what's the garment? The garment is Isaiah 61. Just listen to this, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Here comes. For He hath clothed me with the garments of... Salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. See it? Who are the few? Are the few the ones who say, Lord, Lord? No. Are the few the ones who do religious things, preach, cast out demons, wonderful works? Maybe they're even on TV. Who are the few? They're the ones who long to do the will of God. They're the ones who, in knowing it, do it. That's who they are. They're the ones who willingly and eagerly turn from their sin in repentance. They're the ones who submit joyfully to the Lordship of Christ. If you go into chapter 18, they are the ones who come as a little child in meekness and humility, realizing they are absolutely dependent and unable to help themselves. And they are the ones who are clothed in a garment of what? Which produces fruit. That's the only way you can know the few. Absolutely the only way. Much more to be said about that. We don't have time. The difference between the true and the false is the difference between the virgins with oil and the virgins what? Without it. What does the oil represent? The Spirit, spiritual life, the life of God. They were all religious. They were all waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. They didn't all get in. And then there were the servants in chapter 25. And they were given what the old reformers used to call gospel privilege. And their master gave them gospel privilege, and some of them made something of it, and some of them buried it in the ground, right? And when he came back, he rewarded those who had responded to gospel privilege, and he punished the ones who had not.
But all of them were hanging around the house of the master. Let me talk as a pastor as I close. I am convinced in my heart that maybe the single greatest mission field in America today is the church because I believe it is filled with unsaved people whose, whose lips can speak the right words but whose hearts are far away. And if you look at the life pattern, which is the only way that you can make, Peter says, your calling and election sure, it's not there. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Every time I take our church to the Lord's table, it's a time of self-examination. Every time, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Don't be deceived. Don't be a deceiver. Don't be under some illusion that because you did something one time in the past or five times in the past, everything is okay. Look at the pattern of your life. Now I want to sum it all up in one thought. The basic characteristic of a true Christian, follow this, is he or she loves Christ. That's the basic thing. If I was ever concerned about a person, I would ask them the question, tell me what you feel about Christ. Eh, I don't feel anything about him. I know, I used to be involved. There are people across our country today saying that it doesn't matter what you feel about Christ now, if you ever felt anything positive about him once in the past, you're saved. It's frightening and it's pervasive. And I'm saying to you, that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if any man loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, devoted to destruction. The flip side of that is Christians love the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love Christ? Do you love Him? I love Him. How do you show that? Jesus said this, He who keeps my commandments, he it is that loves me. The whole thing boils down to the who are the few? They're the ones who keep His commandments because they love Him. And that's the sum of all of this. And so I look back at Sterling. I say, he didn't know Christ when we were kids. I look back at Ralph and even up to today, and Ralph is Ralph's not a Christian. He doesn't love Christ. He doesn't have any desire to obey. I look at Dale from my seminary days, and he doesn't love Christ. I look at Jim, the football player I met on the plane, and he doesn't love Christ. He has no interest in Christ. Now, let me sum this up. When you become a Christian, God totally transforms you. If any man be in Christ, he's what? New creation. Old things pass away, and behold, all things become new. You can't tell me that a totally transformed person with a new nature made by God for a relationship with God won't manifest itself in love for God. That's who you are. Dogs bark, cats meow, cows moo, horses whinny, and birds tweet, and Christians love God. That's nature. That's your nature. 
That's the essence of who you are. That's what God produces in you. You say, well, is this something you do? No, it's just something God does in you at salvation. I don't believe you have to do some pre-salvation works to get saved. I just believe this is what God does when He saves a person. And it's permanent. It's permanent. You say, well, do Christians sin? Sure, but they don't like it. Can you understand that? We all sin. I sin. I don't like it. I hate it. I live in Romans 7, don't you? Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I want to do, I don't do. And I say, oh, wretched man that I am. You know what I'm waiting for? My my, my spirit has been redeemed. My body hasn't. And so I wait for the redemption of the body. Won't that be wonderful? When we don't have to mess with this old, gross flesh? But it, see, it, I love God. I love Christ. I hate sin. And even when I fail to do what God wants me to do, I still love Him. And I hate the evil that I see in myself. That's the mark of the few. That's the mark of the few. They walk the narrow way, you ready for this, and they love it so. They love it so. And they grieve when they fail. That's what God produces in them. So when you look at your own life, examine yourself. What's the character of your life? Not the perfection of your life, but the direction of it. Is it toward holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness and loving God and loving His Word and obeying Him and producing fruit? And that's the pattern. And sin is the ugly exception. That's evidence you're a Christian. On the other hand, if you're holding to some past moment in time, but the pattern of your life is sin unbroken, you're not a Christian. And it's a fearful thing to think that with all your supposed security, you'd wake up someday in hell. Examine yourselves. That's what's on my heart. And I believe that must have been on the Lord's heart because He said it in so many, many, many places in this book. Let's bow in prayer. I want you to just keep your heads bowed as we close tonight. This has been such a wonderful night. What an adventure. And I I just want you to examine yourself. That's between you and God. Do a little inventory. Do I love God's will? Do I find myself doing it with joy? Do I look at my life and see love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control? Oh, not all that it ought to be, but that's the goal of my life. Those are the things I love. Do I sense the Spirit producing in me the joy and the peace and the love of God? Do I see that action fruit, that desire to serve others, to love others, to minister to others, to do righteous deeds, to share, to praise God? Am I exhilarated when I sing the songs of His glory, the fruit of my lips praise to Him? Ask yourself if you hate sin and love righteousness, and if you eagerly submit to the Lordship of Christ, so happy, so content to do whatever He asks, no matter what it is. If that's your heart's desire. You look at your life. Do you have a garment of righteousness? Are you clothed in a robe of righteousness?
So there's something so distinct about your life. Those are the marks of the few. The few. On the other hand, if the inventory reveals to you that you don't know Christ, I pray, God, that He, by His grace, through His Spirit, would bring you out of that self-deception into the dawning of the realization of your true spiritual state and that you would in faith embrace the Savior. Father, thank you for this wonderful evening. We, we do love you. We are like Peter. We don't always act like it, and so sometimes we have to say, Lord, you know everything, so you know we love you. And we have to appeal to omniscience because it's just not evident from our lives at every moment. But we know that you know our hearts, and you know that the pattern of our lives is righteous because we have been saved unto good works which you have before ordained that we should walk in them. Thank you for, by your grace, calling us to be numbered among the few who walk the narrow way to life. Life. Life abundant and life eternal. Help us, Lord, to not only examine ourselves, but to be so careful to call others around us to that same examination to see if we really be in the faith. And Lord, protect us from those who would come in among us and steal our power, who are not the few, but are the deceiving and deceived many. Father, we thank you for this wonderful night, the joy of Christian fellowship, the the blessedness of friendship, the the beauty of your creation, the, the smell and the feel of the rain and the cool breeze. And we're reminded of your goodness. And we love you. And we offer again our thanksgiving for all of this work is your work in us by grace. And all we can say is thank you. Thank you. And may it be, O God, that no one would leave our fellowship under this tent tonight and walk away who has not known that saving grace that brings new life in Christ. We pray in His wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.